Testing. One, two, three. Testing. Can you hear me? I, I can hear in? you. I think so. All right, here we go. Another sweet moment in the history of Theology and Mission podcast. Live from Griffith Conference Center, Northern Seminary Library in Chicago. What, what do you think about Northern Seminary? You've been around how long now? How long have you been here? I've been here for a year. What do you mean, how long? Well, I I've mean, been here I, I on mean, staff. I've how been here long on have you staff been working? for a year. Yeah. I've been teaching for three years before that. Yeah. So, so in and around for four plus years. It's an unusual place. It's got a, it's a sweet spot. Um, somebody I talked to said it's the Goldilocks of theology. Northern <laughs> Not too right, not too left. Not, not your right wing <laughs> conservative theology. Not your, if I may say, liberal theology. But a hardcore biblical evangelical missional place that defies those two stereotypes. That's why I love Northern Seminary. Anyways, <laughs> that was a commer- that, was a nice, that was an unintended commercial. That was that was our nice. It was little just spontaneous. Is out of my love for this impromptu place. plug for the great Northern Seminary. And of course, I forgot the one other thing. This. We have Scott McKnight here. Yes, we do. We yes. have Scott McKnight. So that was a great plug for Northern Seminary that sponsors and promotes and hosts. By the way, Scott McKnight can sometimes be podcast. a burr in my backside. But, I'm sure you return but, the favors. But that's why I love him so much. Anyways. All right, good. So we are. Uh, He's yeah, always criticizing here. my stuff, but I love him anyways. And we go back and forth, and iron sharpens iron. Okay, we were going to talk about leadership, but if you need to do okay, a, little, uh, a little processing, if you need to do a little friendship processing no. with Scott here on the podcast, I'd be happy to, to do that <laughs> for, you for a small fee. Scott, we love you. I love you. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. So today we are talking about leadership, how leadership is neither a hierarchy nor a democracy. It's something else altogether different. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. So this show kind of connects with uh, previous episodes. One is our episode on being bivocational. The second one is an episode on mutual submission, which incidentally happened to be our both both of our most listened to episodes. Did you know that, Dave? I did not did know. Not, no, it's our both of those bivocational mutual submission. Which means we got ten people listening. Finally. Yes. So we have As opposed those, to just you and me. So th- this this uh, <laughs> topic of leadership kind of fits in as this trifecta that we have been working within for many years uh, through our churches about how does bivocationalism, how does the practice of mutual submission, and how does leadership all kind of fit together. Uh, but we've been talking about them differently. So, but today is about leadership. So why don't you start us off with hierarchy, not hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay, so I think most of us, uh, all of us who uh, grew up in the United States of America, Canada, anywhere in the West, but particularly in North America, we are just used to hierarchies. In the church? No, we're used to hierarchies in the church, we're used to hierarchies in our jobs, in in school, in um, hierarchies in uh, arts even, arts. There's always somebody over and above us running the art museum. And so... uh, 
uh, even if there's some you know kind of democratic legitimation to it, still there's somebody, usually a man, because hierarchies are <clears throat> patriarchal most of the time, who uh, makes the decision and enforces the decision in some way, either through a paycheck or some other organizational means, to carry out that decision and and see it carried through. So we're used to hierarchies, whether we realize it or not. Now, when... The hierarchy of the person where the buck stops here. Exactly. The person who has to make the tough decisions. Yeah. The people who cast the vision. (coughs) The Moses who comes down from the mountain with the laws of God. Yes. Well done. And uh, so um, when that's taken away, like when somebody like you comes in the room and says, you know what, we're not going to lead as a hierarchy anymore. Uh, we default into what? Well, why would we do that? What's wrong with hierarchies? Why, what, why, is, why is having a senior pastor or a lead pastor, in your view, perhaps not the best thing? Well, that's, that's a... Or our view. I'm not putting it all That's a you. multifaceted answer. But the first answer is because Jesus said no more hierarchy. He didn't put it in those words. What he what said... What did he say? Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Luke chapter 24, and about three or four to five other places. He says, you know how the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gen, uh, your leaders in the Gentiles, lord it over you. It shall not be so among you. Do not let anyone call you master or rabbi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have called you friends. That's... That's a significant statement all on its own. But anyways, the point is that uh, Jesus... Uh, so, so hierarchy is the result of the fall. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 16 maybe. Uh, if I'm off on that, forgive me. But, you know, uh, after the fall, the, the man shall rule over the woman. And, and uh, so hierarchy comes in after the fall. By the way, this is Augustine. Yes, not, I was just about to say Augustine. Not Aquinas. Season. Augustine was recognized this problem of the fall. That hierarchical leadership was a result of the fall. Even government that operates out of this sort of hierarchical coercion is of the fall. It's a necessity due to the fall. We wouldn't need government if it weren't for the fall. So um, it's got a long tradition in Christianity. Mm-hmm. So, but, but the problem is when we come in and we say no more hierarchy, we don't know how to do it. And, of course, democracy, Enlightenment-style democracy, is a response to the abuses of monarchy, abuses of coercion. And um, so what, what do we do in our churches? We default. This happens really, it's, it's common amongst missional communities where we talk about flat leadership and use that word flat, which probably isn't the best word, although I understand what they're trying to say. And so we often default into democracy where everybody thinks everybody's voice is heard equally on all matters and in all ways. Like everybody's opinion on a particular verse, uh, let's say we're trying to deal with a controversy in the church, everybody's opinion on the verse counts equally. This is the American way. It's and and it's democracy Uh, unfortunately all we do is we end up in um, endless conversations about the topic and they never take it never takes us anywhere so that's the problem with both hierarchy it's abusive coercion and the fact that it's a top down system that depends heavily on one person 
uh, and that one person is not Jesus, but also democracy. We have, um, we end up having new, endless conversations that never take us anywhere because we have no leadership born out of the giftings of the authority of Jesus as Lord inhabited in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So before we move on, uh, I just want to fill out some of those things a little bit more. For hierarchy, uh, some of the practical kind of implications are uh, is that someone has to make a decision. So if someone makes a decision, everyone else follows the decision. So we have a problem in the church, uh, someone makes a decision. You need vision uh, in the church, so, you know, someone makes decisions. This is often the senior pastor, lead pastor, usually a man. So then the flip is, is okay, well, that doesn't, maybe that's not what God wants for us and how Christ has set up the church through the Holy Spirit. So then we default back to the other one, which is democracy, uh, which is, oh, everyone gets to have a voice, everyone gets to have an input, and then you get this sense of endless discussions. So we go from decisions to discussions, uh, you know, but that just ends up being like voting, and that doesn't seem spirit-led either. And so how can you move from decisions to discussions, to some sort of Holy Spirit discernment. This is what we've talked about in Product Christianity and other places, is what we really need is discernments. It's not a decision or just merely a discussion, but a discernment. But I, but I, I think there's, there's reasons why people... Hey, by even, the way, that's a key, key point you just made there. Discernment versus yes. endless conversations and hierarchical decisions. Discernment implies we have an issue that needs to be addressed to move this community forward. And we need to discern it with the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. The mind of Christ is not just one expert who sits on top and went to seminary and got an MDiv and now he's the professional. And he's going to go to Mount Sinai, hear from God, and then tell us, tell the rest of us where to go. It's a communal discernment, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's all the gifts involved, but it doesn't mean it's democracy. And that's, I think, at the point where we're at right now. So what is your response to all that? Well, well, I just want to fill this in more because I feel like a lot, like you can kind of get the sense of, uh, oh, intellectually, I don't want a hierarchy. But I think emotionally and experientially, I think a lot of people do because there's safety in hierarchies. So if you're in the middle of a hierarchy, you know you can get either your subjective affirmation as a person from pleasing the person higher up on the hierarchy Right? Oh, they affirm you. They notice the good work that you did. You know, oh, and, and at now, least the celebrity now, worship. Right. Now I know that, that I have done something worthy. Or you can lord it over the people under you in a hierarchy. Maybe you don't look to the person above you. Maybe you look to the people below you. These people are my charges. I'm in control of them. Uh, you know, so I feel important right? because of that. When you take that away, uh, then who am I? How do I find out who I am? What am I good at? Who, am I, who, who gives my, my ego the affirmation that it's seeking all the time? And so people want hierarchies uh, because it helps them know where they are. But it, also it gives it's, it, it, they're used to it. They're, their identity that yes, you're talking they're about, they're very used to it. Now they don't Even know Even if they don't like it, they're used to it. And, yeah. and then I think it also traps people on the top or near the top of the hierarchy to feel like they have to be competent in a whole bunch of different ways. And so I, you know, I have all these... And they can't reveal their weaknesses. Exactly. This is what I was going to say is, uh, you know, we talked recently about Mandy Smith and after she's coming to the Missional Learning Commons, she wrote this book on the vulnerable pastor. And when you're at the top of a hierarchy, it feels impossible to be uh, um, truthful about your own 
weaknesses and inaccuracies because people are looking for you to be the decision person, to be the competent person. And so the people even on the top can feel trapped by these hierarchies. And by the way, the, the, this problem of the hierarchy is like has never been more prominent in the evangelical church of the United States of America than today. We have more pastors failing at the top. Mm-hmm. We have more dictatorial, coercive jerks running churches and blowing up. I mean, we don't want to mention any names, but they've been all over the Internet for the last five years. We've had people who are hiding within themselves and can't deal with their sanctification issues because they can't reveal. If anyone were to find out they had that thought or they had that lust or they had something else, it would be over, it would be history, and the church would fall apart. This is the fallacy of hierarchies. Right. So then you flip to the opposite side, which is democracy, flat leadership, and that all, oftentimes people advocate for that because coming out of a place of woundedness. Oh, I've been burned by the heavy-handedness of a hierarchy. I love it being flat. Now everyone has a voice and everyone can talk. But a lot of times that kind of mentality can be ruled by people's anxieties. Whoever's the most anxious about some problem in the church who will now talk the loudest. And then the, the pastorally discerning of the group will then know that they're acting out of anxiety, and instead of working toward a solution to the problem, they want to care for the individual, which of course is not wrong, right? But you kind of have the sense of the anxieties of certain people end up taking over um, and speaking loud. And I think, too, um, people who have felt voiceless now are given a voice. And what what happens in that kind of situation? Well, sometimes what happens is suddenly... uh, And we want the voiceless to have a voice, so we're not against that. But... Yes, every voice is important, but it's important to know, uh, like 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4 says, everyone within the boundaries of their gifts as has been given. And so um, there, it, it doesn't mean like so-and-so suddenly, you know, been a, been a Bible student, but probably has not had the gift of teaching and sufficient time to develop that gift of teaching. His or her understanding of a particular text does not carry equal weight with the teacher with or teachers plural or preachers plural who have been recognized for their gifting and have been I mean I may, I would even argue have been ordained uh, in a history of the church sufficient so that they can guide the church in the teaching ministry of the church but it doesn't mean that the teacher just gets to uh, coerce and dictate his view of the text and not put it before the whole church and submit to, say, the pastors and the apostles and the evangelists and the other concerns, with, and, and those of faith and those of healing and those of other, all the other gifts who say, you know what, I think you might have missed this, or I think you might be overstating this, and suddenly the teacher gains insight into his own understanding of the text. So uh, he leads, the teacher leads, the apostle leads, the pastor leads, the evangelist leads. All, all of them lead out of their giftedness, but they still submit it to the broader gifted community. Each voice, in that sense, still has a voice, but it doesn't mean it all carries equal weight. This is the person gifted to lead in this area. This is the, you know, like, like I remember at uh, Life in the Vine, you know, sometimes you didn't, you, 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 get, you guys and women uh, didn't want me leading in specific areas. You said, hmm, I don't think he's gifted in that area. I don't want to say <laughs> what the area was, but you, you know, and that, that's good for me. No, stay within your gift 
and then listen to others on your weaknesses and depend on others who are better pastors than you, who are who have more of an evangelistic. I think. I think. By the way, I'm an evangelist and apostle. That's my strengths. What All do you right. think? What do you think? Where I think we should make a whole podcast about the Apest. Yeah, but anyways, all, all that to say, um, yeah, uh, the arena of the Holy Spirit, what I call pneumatocracy, uh, the gifted body still has leaders in, and, and of course, if you look at Ephesians chapter four and First Corinthians twelve, uh, in Ephesians chapter four it says apostles, past apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors, first to equip the rest of the body. Those are the first leaders that you establish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it's verse 27, first apostles, then teach, first apostles, teach, uh, apostles, prophets, teachers, then the rest of the gifts. And so there's these, not not necessarily first in hierarchy, not even necessarily in terms of position. Actually, first means servant of all, but you establish those first gifts. And then those gifted pastors or, or leaders then affirm all the other gifts in the community and get it rolling in the rest of the community and, and, and recognize all the other gifts and get the community going. And I think that's the way a pneumatocracy rolls. So you brought up the pneumatocracy, uh, which is opposed to, uh, which is kind of the, a, a different thing. It's neither uh, hierarchy and it's neither democracy and it's not even something in between. It's a pneumatocracy ruled by the Spirit. So let's take ruled a minute. by Jesus as Lord through the through gifts the of the Spirit. Right, exactly. So, uh, so it could be a Christo. I don't know. I'm trying to make up another word. I shouldn't do that. Wow. On the air. So, but let's. Can we spend a minute kind of filling out the presuppositions? You've kind of been listing them already. So, can we shift and fill out some of the presuppositions? So for a pneumatocracy, the foundation is all have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Amen. is Pentecost. We, and so this is, what, in one sense, I know all Christian traditions affirm Pentecost, but there's certain Christian traditions that maybe affirm it more than others. And so this is where, you know, we want to really emphasize the Anabaptist uh, or even charismatic and Pentecostal. Charismatic, holiness is that, traditions. Is that the Spirit has been poured out on all people to prophesy um, it's not a hierarchy. Yeah, there's no hierarchy. This goes into Galatians. You know, they neither uh, slave This is why there are men and women in ministry alongside one another, not men over women in ministry. Right, right. Yeah, which is a whole other podcast that we haven't gotten into is men and women ministering together. Uh, the image of God, male and female, he created them. So that's the baseline for this is that uh, all have been given the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean it's a democracy, right? We're not just all kind of undifferentiated sameness as Christians who have been given the Spirit in some sort of uniform way. Uh, Rather, uh, we've been given gifts, and we've been given different gifts. People have different gifts. Um, And so, and then as you said, uh, certain leaders have been given certain gifts, and there's certain gifts that are given to flourish all the other gifts. So there's a priority there but that's only so that all the gifts could grow. Only in chrono, only in chronology. Only. Right. Yeah. And so part of the part of the way of thinking of leadership uh, that we often talk about is not leaders don't make the decision. Rather, leaders equip and then make space for the spirit to work. 
Right. So the primary goal of a leader isn't to make a decision. It doesn't have to be to cast a vision. I disagree with you slightly on but that. But it is to create a space, and, and part of that space goes back to mutual submission. The practice of mutual submission is how you create space for the spirit to be at work through the gifts, for the voices to be raised up. But sometimes making space means quieting other voices down. Sometimes people want to talk all the time. Maybe they need to hold their tongue so that others can speak. And then, as you said, all the gifts are submitted in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, so those are so all the, the Spirit is given to all people, but the Spirit is not given in the same way. There's different gifts. Some gifts are for the flourishing of all, and leaders, in a sense, make room for the Spirit, um, and then we submit one to another. And in all those different things, discernments and direction can be made, can be okay, discerned. But okay. I guess I want to make one really important point here. At least it's important for me. Uh, in my experience, uh, if we don't, uh, if we don't exhort or we don't um, encourage leadership, uh, it can devolve into democracy. So you must lead out of your gift. That means you must lead out of your gift. I said that twice. That means you must lead. Like if you are an evangelist and you are in touch with the neighborhood and you see what's going on and God's giving you the gift of evangelism, you must come to the church leadership and say, I see what's going on in this part of the neighborhood. I see the hurt and the pain. And somehow we need to proclaim the gospel in there. And so I propose we do this. I've listened to God. I've poured over scripture and I've I've prayed and out of this and this and this I propose I believe God's asking us to do this make a proposal and then say the words I submit to you um, it's very important that you lead and that's leadership not just ha- leading a conversation but making a proposal now someone will come back and say you know that's great but but just going in there and giving money to people and such and such is really patronizing I say we we, we respond exactly the way you said, except let's not send <clears throat> one person. Let's send five people to be with them and uh, just spend some time with them and listen to them uh, and hear what's going on. And so the, the, uh, the pastor in the group might uh, say, great proposal, but we need A+. Plus. And, and that's how leadership and together over prayer and mutuality in a very, not, not necessarily a, a long period of time, we are able to make a decision and move to where God's moving us in that neighborhood through the work of the evangelists in that neighborhood. But it's very important to lead out of your gift and make a proposal and submit it to the rest of the group. And that's the model of leadership, I believe, that Paul is extolling there in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 6, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So we have to <clears throat> understand our gifts ourselves and then act within them by proposing things and submitting working together, submitting them, right? Proposing, submitting them to the group, uh, seeking what the Spirit would do. Seeking the oneness of the Spirit. Now, this is hard work. I think a lot of times, uh, I mean, people have, uh, someone left Life on the Vine once because they, they were convinced that we couldn't teach him how to be a leader, and he had the sense that leaders were ones who make decisions and cast vision and we weren't teaching them how to do that and we weren't right we were teaching mother skills which is how to listen to the spirits and how to understand your gifts and how to make space uh to to make a discernment and things like that um so i think this can be very confusing i think a lot of people uh in my opinion feel like there's no leadership when real strong leaders in a more hierarchical mentality come into a pneumatocracy 
they often say what? They often say, who's the leader here? Yeah. Where are all the leaders? Because they're looking for decision makers who's and big voices. The who's leader the leader here? We need the one, most often, man to show us the way. Okay, so it's hard. So how let, do you quickly answer someone who comes hard. in asking, who's the leader around here? How come there's no leaders around here? What do you say? I would say we have a multiplicity of pastors. Who's the pastor? We don't have a pastor. We have a multiplicity of church leaders. And here they are, A, B, C, and D. Who do I go to to solve this problem? Well, um, um, so-and-so is the evangelist, and you should go talk to him. Uh, who, do I, who do I go to if I have a pastoral need? Well, she's one of our, she's the pastor of the group. Who do I go if I want to find out what the text means and I'm confused and I need somebody to teach me in the neighborhood? Ah, uh, so-and-so is the teacher. Okay, I, I, that's how we learn how the body of Christ works. And that's how that person's challenged to realize they too have a role to play in this kingdom. Not only in this Sunday morning gathering, but in the neighborhood gatherings and work that we're doing in each neighborhood. So I know a lot of people are asking, you know, because we want to be real. We want to keep it real here at Theology on Mission. So what are the pitfalls? People are, at, people are going to either experience them, who are maybe are resonating with what we're saying, yeah. but they need to know what are the pitfalls. So what are some of the pitfalls of trying to live into this pneumatocracy? Pitfalls. Well, you and I have both experienced a lot of pitfalls. Do you want me to start or you want to... Well, I think we've covered a lot of them already, but, you know... Well, one would be the warning that um, intellectually people will agree with this model until a crisis occurs, and then they want the pastor to be on their side and then to fix their problem. Right. So this has happened several times where a crisis will happen between relationships and instead of uh, mutual submission and a seeking of what the Spirit's doing, they just want you, the pastor, to side with them and to bully the other person. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so this happens quite often. So, so don't feel like you've done a lot of wonderful work when intellectually people agree with you. Wait until there's a crisis and you'll find out how much people are really committed to this. But then don't be discouraged. Just yeah. know it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, you you had a you had a good tweet the other day. I can't remember what it was, but but uh, uh, you basically said we can lead as vision casters from top down, or we can coalesce a community from bottom up, or something like that, right? Yeah. Well, it, so there's two things. One is so I, I contrast vision casting with consensus building. Yeah. And so vision casting is a hierarchical mentality: is that one or a couple different people get the vision, and then what do they have to do? They have to sell it to the rest of the church, and usually the selling language is part of it. We're selling, selling the vision to the rest of our congregation. They got to get on board. If you don't get on board, then what do you need to do? Go find another. Go church. find another church, right? And so, and that works. You can build a church that way. Uh, you can build a church if you have Christians to build it with, but it's mostly a Christendom church. It's a church built for Christians to sustain and reinforce existing Christians. And so vision casting has the hard work of casting the vision after the vision is obtained. Now, consensus building does the hard work of needing to find what the consensus is of the spirits. You have to keep relationships intact. But then on the flip side is you don't have to do any vision casting. Why? Because the community has come up with the vision. Yeah. And so, so you don't have to cast the vision. You just, have, it, to, it, you just the, have to find it. The vision is already cast because it was born out of a community. And there's Not high ownership. one person at the top. Right. There's high ownership. People understand. People are excited. There's a lot of buy-in. And so, like, I think a lot of times we have all these instruction manuals for churches on how to cast vision and it's all business-oriented. 
right? And it's like, like, should we spend all this time, money, and conferences learning how to cast a vision? Why don't we build consensus? But the point, is, the point is, if we are doing contextual work, we have to do it in the second way, not the first way. If we are actually being present in our neighborhoods and doing the kind of leadership that will engage our neighborhoods... And we believe to, God's already there at work. And, and, and we need to build a consensus on the ground as to what God's doing and what he's calling us to be and do. Not create, not go in there with a new vision uh, after we read a book and, and, and go... Hey, we're missional now, and this is what it means, missional. We're all going to get behind this because we need to do A, B, and C. So it's really a powerful way to think about how God works in the world. All right, back to the insecurities. Uh, is I think, or back to the, the problems, the weaknesses, is when we think of leadership this way, what we call co-leadership, is it's going to expose all of your insecurities super fast. And what I've seen and heard is that people try to be co-pastors, co-leaders, to have this kind of mentality. Um, but maybe their spiritual maturity was not high enough, and it becomes a disaster. And, so, and then they think that this kind of leadership doesn't work. But really, they weren't prepared to do it. They weren't prepared to submit themselves. They weren't prepared to confess their sin on a regular basis. They weren't prepared to actually listen to the spirits and trust that they could hear from God. And so it becomes a total disaster, and I think a lot of codependency kind of creeps in. Um, and so don't I would say don't try... This kind of leadership, just out of the blue, with you know a couple friends, you, you kind of need some people to work it through with you. You need some models, uh, and it takes it takes a lot of practice. So don't get discouraged, but you know you need to be prepared. I'm trying to give a little um, eyes wide open perspective. Am I being too down on it now? I think you're being too down on it. I but mean, we've seen some difficult situations well, occur. Let me say, there's failures in all different kinds of leadership, <laughs> True. not just uh, this kind of leadership. But you're right; uh, your failures shall become exposed light years ahead of. You can hide all kinds of failures in hierarchy for a long period of time, especially if you're dependent on an office. Somebody gave you an office with a title, but uh, mutuality and and uh, and, and pneumatocracy really uh, requires you to be vulnerable and and be able to handle uh, uh, the exposure of your weaknesses and the exposure of conflict and be okay with it, unanxious about it. Be present with the Holy Spirit and what he's trying to do in that. Trust the work of the Holy Spirit in leadership. So if we're seeking the Holy Spirit in leadership, we're seeking consensus building, it means being rooted and connected into certain places for a certain amount of time. So let's shift into what are you reading, and I know the book you're reading has a lot to do with what we just saw. Well, I'm not actually reading this book. Uh, but you had read it recently. Yes, I actually wrote the uh, afterword for it, The Subterranean, Why the Future of the Church is Rootedness, by Dan White, Jr., we love Dan. He is the most tweetable guy. He has the best tweets. He's Go Mr. Tweet. Him. Go and, find him. He's, he's a tweet. He's Dan White Jr. Go find him. But this is a great book. You know, there aren't that many books. I mean, uh, The New Parish and, and some of those other books uh, are doing a good job in terms of philosophically grounding the idea of place. And uh, Len Yarmelson, if you're out there, yeah, you do a great job with that book, uh, is it Theology of Place? But uh, this book is... There's no, uh, pla- there's no home like place. Yeah. Thank you for for remembering that. And uh, I think I blurred that book too. But anyways, <laughs> uh, Subterranean is a great book on 
the practice of building a community on the ground, contextually engaging and being present in place for God's mission. I highly recommend it, so highly that I wrote the afterword for it. So anyways, Subterranean by Dan White Jr. Excellent. I'm also I'm reading uh, this book that I just got in the mail, Man Enough by Nate Piles. It kind of talks about his struggles as a pastor, but also uh, as a man who kind of fits into all these hierarchies, not just of the church hierarchy, but the hierarchies of the world that have expectations of what makes a man a man. Is it these different activities, different accomplishments? Um, and just how does that affect us and what is God really calling men into in the West? Um, and so I'm a couple chapters in. I really like it. I'm sure I'll be saying more online about it soon. It's man enough. It's out by Zondervan. I think it's coming out next month. I got an advanced copy. All right. Well, I think that's it for today. I'm going to let you off of the hook for Fitch versus Fitched. Anything else you want to add? I'm done. He's in. He is Dave Fitch. I'm Jeff Olskall. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And please thank you. Fitchest, F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T <laughs> is my Twitter handle. And, and yours Olskall. is? It's, it's my first and last name. And all of you who put reviews on uh, uh, iTunes for Theology on Mission, thank you so much. We're looking for other reviews. That really is the best way to let people know that you like this podcast. It's the best way to help other people to see it and to discover it. So please navigate over to iTunes. Give us a quick five-star or one-star or whatever and a quick review. We would appreciate that so much. Until next time, Dave Fitch. Jeff Olskloss signing off from Northern Seminary. Until next time.